With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. This episode of The James Altucher Show is being brought to you by the Stansbury Conference Series. If you'd like to meet both James and Josh in person, then be sure to join us next month in Las Vegas as they and over 30 other amazing speakers will deliver brilliant ideas in short, precise presentations that may even change your life. Just go to www.stansburyconference.com backslash altature. Again, that's stansburyconference.com backslash altature. And now here's today's show. Hope you enjoy. And we hope to see you at the conference. Thanks. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network. So I have Josh Fower on the call, on the podcast. Josh is the author of Moonwalking with Einstein, which he can explain why that's the title, but he's the 2006 U.S. memory champion. And Josh, welcome to the podcast, first off. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And what's, what I really like about your story, I like this kind of genre of journalists who become the stories. You know, like the guy who studies the Scrabble Championship and then a year later ends up competing in the World Scrabble Championship. And Stefan Fatsis, great book. Yeah, yeah. Wall Street Journal sports writer. And then there was the, there's a couple guys who go off to study the World Poker Championship and then become obsessed and they end up in the World Series of Poker a year later. So there, there's been like two or three books in that genre. But you really kind of took it to a whole new level, which is you studied the, the, this obscure thing, like the U.S. Memory Championship, which no one had ever heard of. And then you put it on the map because then you became, after being a journalist about it, you became the 2006 U.S. memory champion. Yeah, uh, it's fair to say I got kind of obsessed over that year and um, was not expecting to, to win the contest that I'd gone basically to enter uh, almost as an experiment in participatory journalism. And uh, it was an experiment gone haywire because I, I won. There's always a good reason and a real reason. You know what I mean? So the good reason is, okay, we're going to do participatory uh, journalism here. But I'm wondering if there's a real reason. And, 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 I, and by the way, I want to get to all of your great memory techniques and I want to dive into the book. But one, th one thing that occurred to me when I say the, the real reason is yeah. the thing about memory and memory techniques is you're given a deck of cards and within a minute, you're going to know if you succeeded or failed at memorizing it. So it's this this very quick kind of stimulus feedback loop that you get into. And I find for myself, this might not be true for anybody else, but I find for myself when I get addicted or obsessed with that kind of behavior that maybe there's other things going on in my life 
where I'm not getting the kind of feedback that I want. So I really strive to get good at things where I can get quick feedback. And I'm just Oh my god, you're psychoanalyzing me here. Yes, I'm totally <laughs> psychoanalyzing you. Cuz it cuz it, it just totally reminds me I'm, it's total projection. So I'm I'm more psychoanalyzing myself. But I'm just curious if that was happening in your life and it could be anything from like being unhappy at a job or in a relationship or anything. Okay, so I have not uh <laughs> I have not dug that deep yet into my soul to, to diagnose this, but uh now that you mention it, the this all happened when I was just starting out as a journalist and, you know, being a freelance journalist starting out, I was a year or two out of college. That's a hard way to make a living. I think I, I was actually going back and looking at my old tax returns and I made $16,000 my first year. And that was probably doing very well as a, as a freelance journalist. You, you were living, I think you were living in your mom's basement, right? Well, that's the only, only way I was able to make it work professionally was uh, I let my parents uh, give me free rent. And, and so I was staying with them for the first couple of years that I was trying to make it as a journalist. And uh, yeah, so I, maybe that's part of the reason I got so obsessed with this is because like, you know, I was trying to make ends meet. Yeah. You were even kind of trying to hide it a little bit, how obsessive you were. Like in the book, you mentioned you were kind of like sort of hiding your <laughs> lists of random numbers or words when they well, would come down and visit you. at the time, it didn't seem like a thing to be proud of. Right. Uh, uh, sort of a, a obsessively geeky competition. But, you know, in, in retrospect, it was uh, an enormously fun year and uh, a rewarding year. And, and I would have said that even if I hadn't ended up as the United States memory champion, even if I hadn't end up, ended up writing this book. Well, and, and you know, actually, I want to get to a lot of that, too, because it does sound like it was enormously fun. Like, I loved your whole book. It was it was a page turner. And I, in general, I love this kind of genre of participatory uh, journalism, particularly when you win. Like, that's such a, a great story. So when did you kind of make the leap where you were like, okay, this seems interesting, but now I'm going to start to, uh, I want to better myself through memory learning? There, 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 were, there were a couple inflection points. The first one was, when, when did I decide that I was going to try and train my memory? And that happened after I had attended one of these memory contests as a journalist, just purely as an observer, to write a short piece. Uh, and that was published in Slate magazine. And it's, you know, I don't mention it anywhere in the piece, but the day after uh, I had turned in that piece or after I attended that contest, rather, I went out and with one of the world's best memorizers, a guy called Ed Cook. And we spent a day together and he taught me some of these memory tricks, memory tricks, which are, you know, thousands of years old and have this incredible history. And I was totally hooked from that moment on wanting to learn more and on tr wanting to try to see if these tricks really worked. But then there was another inflection point, which is when I went from like, hey, I'm really curious about whether these ancient techniques uh, could be used to improve my memory to, I am going to try and win this United States Memory Championship. And I don't know exactly what date that happened or if it even happened on one day, but certainly by a month before this contest, I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm in this to win this. Well, it's funny. You... Um you know, you, you kind of uh, spent a lot of time in Europe during that year. And it, because, as you mentioned, the Europeans were so far ahead of the Americans, by learning their techniques, I think maybe it kind of brought the target closer to you in some sense uh, in terms of the American championship. Yeah, so the dirty secret is I could never win the United States Memory Championship today because, in part probably because of, of my book. At the time that I entered, the Europeans and, and to a lesser extent, some of the countries in Asia 
were so far ahead of the Americans in this sport of competitive memory. The Europeans were using techniques that hadn't yet made it across the ocean to the U.S. Uh, they practiced harder. And so I went and I wrote about the World Memory Championship. I went to the German Memory Championship. I met a lot of these guys, hung out with them, learned all of their techniques, and then brought them to the U.S. and was the only guy using some of them. And today, all the Americans use those techniques. And today, the best American memorizers are able to compete with the American, with the Europeans, particularly the Germans and the Chinese. So, so like at your peak, I'm just trying to get a, an understanding, give the audience an understanding of what this means. Like at, at your peak, what was like the most impressive memory feat you, you could do? The thing that gets the most wow is when I say I was able to memorize a pack of playing cards in a minute and 40 seconds. So like, for instance, I would show you a card like one second at a time and you could uh, repeat it back to me. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was a little bit slower than that, so, uh, but, but not much slower, yeah. And that was the United States record at the time. I set the United States record of, of a minute and 40 seconds. Today, the, the record is like 30 seconds today. Oh, it's 30 seconds. So that's totally using like the European techniques. Totally. Using techniques even uh, more advanced than the ones that I was using. So like not to be t completely naive, but when you broke the U.S. record, were you like, oh, my God, I'm the best person out of 300 million people at this at memorizing a, a deck of cards? Yeah, that thought occurred to me. It's a really crazy, funny thought to have. <laughs> but uh, alas, I was only the best for like, you know, uh, one or two more years. So, so I wanted to explore, and again, I want to get into the specific techniques, and I, I've done a couple of podcasts on the, the topic of memory, but I want to understand the relationship that you feel is between, let's say, learning and memory or wisdom and memory. And, I, and you discuss this quite a bit in your book, and particularly as history reaches these points like you know, the art of writing, then the art of bookmaking, and now you can argue you know, Google everywhere. It sort of lessens the need for specific memory. And I wonder how that plays into creativity and intelligence and wisdom and so on. Yeah, great question. I mean, a mistake that we often make when we talk about memory is to uh, discuss memory as though it were this single monolithic thing, when in fact that's not the case. And our memory is, is wrapped up in our way of looking at the world and our way of thinking about the world. There's a great sort of example from the science of memory, which is uh, the memories of chess grandmasters. So at a certain point in every chess player's development, uh, they become good enough at playing chess that they can play effectively blindfolded, right? Because they can remember where all the pieces are on the board. And all great chess players eventually reach this point. And one of the best predictors of how good you are at chess is your ability to remember chess games. And so chess grandmasters can remember you know, games they played years ago, You've got a tremendous memory for chess. You show them a board for a split second. They can look at the board and will remember where all the pieces were. But if you take that same board and you move the pieces around such that they couldn't have arrived that way through a real game, all of a sudden their memories for that chess board are basically not much better than average. So that's kind of weird. They're looking at the same chess board. One arrived that way through a game. One it was totally randomly arranged. They remember the one that arrived that way through a game, and they can't remember the chessboard that was randomly set up. What's going on there, and this is revealing about how our memories work and how knowledge works, is those uh, chess masters were looking at that board, processing it through a lens 
that um, basically filters it through through every game they've ever played, through patterns, through structure, through a set of rules that make it a chessboard. And that's true of everything that we look at, everything that we experience, everything that we learn in life is we process it in the light of all the memories that we have floating around in our skulls. So, you know, memory and, and, and knowledge, memory and expertise, memory and wisdom are, are intimately locked up with one another. You can't, actually, you can't actually separate them. Being a great chess player is the same thing as having a great memory for chess. You know, it, you, you bring up a really good point because, so, so I think one of the words you might have been searching for there with chess was uh, a, a chess grandmaster will look at a board and instead of seeing 64 squares, he might see five or six chunks. So he'll see, okay, it's a castled king, and there's an open uh, queen file, and there's double pawns on the, the knight file, and so on. And uh, I, the only reason I know this is I was actually in those studies initially, like 30 years ago or 35 years ago, because uh, a, I'm a chess master. So the grandmasters who participated in this study, they would see five positions for like 10 seconds, and then could reproduce about 60 or 70% of them in, you know, a couple of minutes. But then, like you say, when they were given just random positions, they were no better than, let's say, me, who was an ordinary master. And I, of course, was better than ordinary players. And so it was an interesting study. But without that ability to chunk, you wouldn't be able to uh, be a chess master or a chess grandmaster. Yeah, and, and, and this is going on in all walks of life. Uh, so there is something that each one of your listeners has a great memory for, some domain that they have a great memory for, and it might be baseball, it might be cooking. It's typically the thing that they are passionate about, interested in, care about, devoted to. Uh, a great memory comes with, with the interest and the set of rich neural networks that you form around the thing that you're most interested in. Right, so you have to kind of... Love it. So, so what I'm wondering is when you when you got really skilled at memorizing decks of cards and lists of words and, and poetry and, and lists of numbers, did that translate to better memory in every, any other area of your life? The answer is no. And surprisingly, the answer is no. Like, let's say you yeah. read a book. Like, yeah. Do you remember it a month later? <laughs> no, no, no more than no more than other people. In fact, this is a key insight here. When I said that memory is not a single monolithic thing, you, you can't just turn up your, your, your memory juices. You can't turn up the volume on your memory uh, across the board. People have great memories for one domain. They don't have a great memory for some other domain. The techniques that I learned were, are extremely effective at remembering within the context in which they can be deployed. So I've got great tricks for remembering people's names. They don't help me remember to remember where I put my car keys. Um, I guess so you, could, you, could, yeah. you, you can argue that just the process of spending that year studying these techniques and working hard at something, you know, three, four hours a day or however long a day you did it, maybe 10 hours a day, got you good at getting good at things. Like, have you, have you, have you seen that uh, talent uh, or skill translate to other areas of your life? So this is something I write about quite a bit in the book. Uh, there's a chapter on on expertise, on what I call the OK Plateau. And the, I, I love that chapter, by the way, because that comes from the Bruce Lee quote. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I, I love Bruce Lee quotes. So, so I, I, I remember it. It was uh, something like, if you, if you stay at your OK Plateau, that's what will kill you. 
Yeah, you know what? I got to figure out how to work a Bruce Lee quote into my next into my <laughs> next book. I think I may actually uh, know how to do that. <laughs> I'm looking right. forward to it. Yeah. Um, right. So, so there are generalizable principles that scientists, psychologists have found uh, looking at how people get to be experts in domain after domain after domain. Things that seem to translate, um, but they are not. But they are, I, I would say, strategies more than. Uh, propensities more than um, I, I don't know that what I learned in the process of becoming the U.S. Memory Championship was directly translatable to you know being a better writer. I'm not sure. Okay, but like you gave the example of your dad, you know, practicing putting and mm -hmm. not and practicing putting for hours and hours at a time, but not necessarily getting better at it. And right. I, I think it was your dad in, in the book. Yeah, right? and yeah. and. Um, you know, one thing that you discuss, and this is related to uh, Anders Ericsson's, you know, 10,000 hours to be, you know, the best in the world at something, is that it's not just the 10,000 hours, it's 10,000 hours where you have some metrics where you can measure your success or failure so you know how to get better. Yeah, so it, it is essential if you want to get better at something to have uh, instant immediate feedback, uh, which allows you to evaluate whether the strategies you're using are effective or not. It's crucial that when you're practicing, you practice outside of your comfort zone, that you are pushing yourself to constantly move that frontier between what you're capable of doing and what you're not capable of doing. Uh, those are a couple of the techniques that experts tend to deploy in field after field, and which I was using when I was training my memory. Well, let's take writing as an example, because you, you are a professional writer, how, and, but it's a little bit more of a subjective practice. Like, how would you get out of your comfort zone um, as a writer right now? I only choose to work on long pieces where there is some element of like, I might fail at this, where uh, I feel like I am uh, really uncertain about how I'm going to pull it all together. Right now I'm working on a book about hunter-gatherers. So I've been spending the last three years embedded on and off, not, not continuously with a group of uh, hunter-gatherers, a group of Imbengeli pygmies, who are the largest remaining group of hunter-gatherers in the world. Where, where are they? Yeah, uh, in the Republic of Congo, in the northern part of the Republic of Congo. That was a project where, when I started it, like, I really didn't know where it was going or how it was going to come together. I still, at this point, don't entirely know how it's all coming together. Uh, but, so, like, that's the challenge that I like. Uh, and I like operating in that zone where the only way this is going to work is if I learn something in the process of doing it. Well, I and love that you're working on a book on hunters and gatherers because it actually does segue into my next question, which is that are we less intelligent by, in some metric than kind of ancient hunter-gatherers? Because as you point out in the book, they had to remember everything in, in their area. Like a, a hunter-gatherer had to, had to basically know where all the poison plants were, all the animals were all the dangerous spots, all the good spots, all the places where they could sleep. They had to remember all this and then remember it when they moved too, which we no longer have to do. Like I don't have to care who my neighbor is or where the, where the dangerous fruits are in my neighborhood or whatever. Look, it's, we, we have different kinds of intelligence suited to, different, uh, to the different environments in which we live. I'll tell you a story about the, the guy who's going to be the main character in my next book. I, I was with him. I traveled with him to the big city, to the capital. It was his first time uh, in, in a big city. And this is a guy who has spent his life in the forest. And we got to the capital and we got off the bus. 
it's first time seeing a big city, first time seeing night lights and uh, people and, and um, cars and traffic and just the incredible scenery of a big city. And he's paying such close attention to every turn we take in the taxi, this way, that way. And I say, you know, Makoti, you don't need to, to, to pay attention to all this. Like, don't worry about it. Like, I, you know, we've got maps. We'll, we'll get around. And I realized the next day that I said to him, you know, do you remember where the bus station was? This was probably five miles away. We turned a number of times in the middle of the night. And he closed his eyes. He looked and he pointed directly at the bus station. And I took out my phone, my GPS compass on it, and he was exactly right. He knew exactly where the bus station was. I found out that no matter where we were in the city, he could point to every place that we had been with exact precision. But let me ask we, you a question then. Yeah. Is that so? And this gets into some of the memory techniques. So you talk about a big memory technique called the memory palace. And I've, I've actually covered it on a, a prior podcast I've done with a guy named, named Jim Quick, who's a kind of a memory expert. And, you know, you could describe what the memory palace is, but is he basically doing a real world memory palace with that? Uh, so I'm actually not entirely sure how he does what he does. It's, uh, I think, some mix of dead reckoning and be being aware of where the sun is at all times, so like really keeping track of the sun. And uh, I think just a, a really well-developed sense of, uh, of, of spatial navigation that he has to develop because in the forest, if you turn around with your eyes closed, you're going to get lost. I think he's developed that expertise. It's expertise that's latent in all of us and, or that could be developed by any of us, but we don't live in an environment in which we have to develop it. So I, I, think, it, I think it's actually something different from the memory palace. And, and what, what level of intelligence do you think he is lacking in our current environment? Oh, well, which, which, he, which he wouldn't be able to get without like a year's worth of work. He can't count past 30. Ah, so like if you try to teach him like multiplication, it, it would be beyond him? I mean, it would be hard right now. He'd have to first learn to count past 30. Um, I'm sure he could do it. He's a brilliant guy. He, that, that is a kind of expertise with, with numeracy, with numbers that we've developed because of the unique environment in which we live in, which being numerate is so highly uh, important. I imagine also kind of uh, reading comprehension must be difficult. Uh, well, he, he's also illiterate as well as enumerate. Um, so, yeah. You were kind of trained uh, when, you were, when you were going for the championship. You were trained by this European guy, Ed. Uh, who was like one of the best in the world at, at memory. And he seemed like a really fascinating character. And there was one quote where there's a couple of quotes by him that I really enjoyed. But one was, if there were one precept that could be said to govern his life, it is that one's highest calling is to engage in enriching escapades at every turn. Yeah, I, I love that. <laughs> I, I like that idea. Like it, it seemed like Part of him, the reason why he chose memories, it was just an enriching escapade. And he had other enriching escapades that he was involved in. And it does seem like that is a good way to live life. It is, right? Like, we should be milking it for, for, for all it's worth. And, and that is how Ed lives his life. And so it made him a great character and uh, such a, you know, a wonderful person to be on this journey with. Well, what's uh, he done since, since 2006? He's had many, many great, funny escapades. But he's also started a, um, a company called Memrise, M-E-M-R-I-S-E. They're a web app, web iPhone, Android app, uh, for learning any kind of information, but particularly foreign language vocabulary. 
And it's the, the app takes advantage of some of the same techniques that he taught me for, uh, that I, and that I used when I competed in the memory championship. Uh, uh, now I'm going to ask you a technique because so, my wife specifically asked me to ask you this. Yeah. You, you walk into a, uh, and this is the classic memory story from that, that start of the memory palace. But like you walk into a room filled with people and you have to remember their names. How do you do it? Let's say there's 100 people. Right. So the, the, the key trick is to figure out how to associate, make an association between something about the person's physical presence and the sound of their name. So if I meet you, I'll touch her. Did I pronounce that right? Yeah, I'll touch her. It's like I'll touch her fast. Perfect. So that is, in fact, what I like. I would picture you. I would take a split second and picture you. I'm looking at a, I'm looking at a photo of you right now. So I'm finding this very easy. Uh, I, I would take a second to imagine you just like acting like a total creep around, <laughs> <It's> <laughs> around like some woman being like, oh, I'll touch her and like reaching out and, and like pinching her, her, uh, her butt. And that taking that second to create that image in my mind's eye is making an association between your name and your face. And it's not a guarantee that the next time I see you, I will remember your name, but I've got an extra hook now in my brain that will hopefully lead me back to your name from your face. Now, that extra hook is interesting because the, the first hook is, you know, you get my name associated mm -hmm. with my face. So that's one hook. But yeah. then what does the extra hook provide you? Does that mean another part of the brain is also remembering my name or like what's happening yeah. neurologically? Yeah. By engaging my visual memory and also uh, auditory memory, because I'm, I'm actually hearing you say, you know, I'll touch her. I'm just planting that memory in, uh, or pieces of that memory in, in, in lots of places. And uh, any one of those can hopefully help guide me back through that neural pathway to your name. So if like someone meets you like at a party, they could think, um, you know, Josh Foyer and picture the foyer they grew up in. You know, minus the Y. I'll make it even easier for you. The name is pronounced for like the number. Ah, um, okay. So, you know, I, I always tell people to just like imagine taking out a steak knife and etching the number four into my forehead. Uh, and just that bloody, gruesome image is going to be memorable. And one of the rules of, 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 of this technique is the funnier, stranger, weirder, more gory, sexier, more bizarre the image, the more likely it is that you'll remember it. That's sort of like how, you know, like magazines work. Basically, the, the gorier or sexier on the front page of a newspaper, the more you're likely to pick it up and buy it. Like there's some kind of brain thing happening there. Well, uh, it's, 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 it's the same brain thing. It's, you know, anything that grabs our attention, that excites our imagination, is more likely to be memorable. And so what we're doing is we're taking advantage of that. We're creating images that, are, that grab our attention, that grab our imagination and are therefore more memorable. So I, I want to look at that from an evolutionary perspective again, because obviously what grabbed our attention a million years ago or whatever our mammalian ancestors were, was if there was a lion in front of us, that would scare us more than if there was a flower in front of us. So we would obviously remember the lion more than the flower. So I wonder if it's related to just basically that's how we evolved, how our brains evolved was to avoid danger by noticing gory images. Uh, that sounds plausible. And I would say the other piece of this is emotion. 
So, you know, when, when we have emotional, when things happen in our lives that, 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 that excite our emotions, those things become more memorable. And that's something that, that's a result of things actually happening in, in our brain anatomy that uh, our amygdala, which is responsible for our sort of emotional responses, is right next to our hippocampus, which is responsible for our creation of long-term memories. And there's a signal that's sent saying, hey, this is emotionally resonant. Let's make sure we uh, record this. Let's, let's make sure this gets filed away. So the more we can use that to our advantage by creating emotionally resonant images, by creating images that excite us, we're, we're riding on top of that natural connection between memory and emotion and making more memorable images. And can you use the same technique if you're reading a book? So let's say you're reading a book on your Kindle and you decide on, uh, instead of highlighting anything, I'm just going to remember everything that's important to me. Can't you decide to use the same technique on all the passages that you would have previously highlighted and now instead you're going to put it in your memory in this way? I suppose you could. And I, and I think there are people who did that historically and, and maybe even some people who do that today. I've tried it. It's enormously mentally taxing. It, it would be one thing to do that with a set of texts that you absolutely wanted to hold on to for the rest of your life, for the rest of your life. The amount I read uh, on a daily basis, I, it would be utterly impossible to, to make that kind of investment. And that's you know, a function of how our culture has changed. So once upon a time, in a world with few books, people could invest more in remembering the handful of texts that were you know, the crucial part of the canon, whether it's the Bible uh, or the Bible plus some other texts. Today, you just can't do that. You can't invest in remembering what you read because we have to read so broadly. We have to read so much if we want to keep up with what's going on. So here's a stupid question. Like, what's the point of reading a nonfiction book if like three days later you're going to forget everything in it? What's the point of going to college if, if three years uh, later you're going to forget everything you learned? I, I agree with that. What is the point? Well, I think uh, – And you bring this up in your book, by the way. You, yeah. you talk about the, the – education kind of coming out of the military, the whole standardized education approach is just this military thing for, for uneducated people. Yeah, well, I mean, I think we're learning more than just a collection of facts when we, when we go to school. We, we're, we're learning more than just a collection of facts when we read nonfiction. For me, when I read nonfiction, part of what I'm doing is making connections between, it's like, I find that the books that I'm reading are almost like my, they like exist in a kind of, um, in like a kind of buffer. And they are the, the set of ideas that I'm making connections to with the things that really have stuck around in my long-term memory. And so by constantly changing what's in that buffer, I'm able to make new connections. Uh, and I think it's important to have a variety of, of, of information in that buffer, the things that you're really thinking about at that moment and can, can, can find new connections to. I'm, I'm curious on the, on the memory techniques, if anyone has ever thought about using singing as a memory technique in the sense that, you know, there are studies that show if you, if you stutter, you're not going to be a stutterer if you sing because it's different parts of the brain. So I'm wondering if like you're told something um, verbally and then you kind of in your head sing it, are you more likely to remember it because you've got this other part of the brain now working on it? Yeah. I mean, that's why we teach kids the ABCs to the song. Singing is actually the oldest uh, mnemonic trick in the books. The Odyssey and the Iliad were, were, were sung. They were performed. And the reason that they were so memorable is because when you're singing something, it's the same reason you can remember song lyrics much better than you can remember uh, prose. 
when you sing, you are adding a kind of, the music is adding a layer of structure on top of the words, uh, a structure that makes those words more memorable, whether it's meter, rhyme, alliteration, the tonal movement up and down the scale. Those are additional forms of structure. They're, they're additional associational hooks that make it easier for you to pull the words of that song back out. You know, again, Ed, Ed was filled with, your, your, your teacher Ed was filled with all these great quotes. And um, one thing that was very interesting to me was, and it's interesting to a lot of people, this issue of psychological time versus clock time. Like how people say, oh my God, the past five years, it just feels like one second went away. Um, as opposed to like, uh, so much has happened to me in the past five years. And so he says specifically, the more we pack our lives with memories, the slower time seems to fly. So, and this is related to his prior quote about having like these enriching experiences. It seems like if you pack lots of moments in your life that are just, you know, extreme or out of the comfort zone, your life is going to feel longer than if you just kind of have the boring uh, day in and day out routine. And I wonder if you can kind of like program that into your life. So you're changing your routine every day or, or how do you make use of that? I think a lot of us do program that into our lives. One of, the ro- one of the roles that vacations play when we take ourselves out of our normal routine is they create these kind of chronological landmark- landmarks in our life. And we, can, we start to position other things that happen in our life when we are recounting our life in relation to those chronological landmarks. You know, this happened, this happened right around the time of my big trip to, to Paris. This happened just after you know, uh, that big birthday celebration that we had, we, we tell our life story around these chronological landmarks. And so the idea is like, the more you can create those landmarks, the, the more your more life feels full, the more it feels like, um, it's not just one day bleeding into the next. But you know, many people take vacations like once, maybe twice a year. I wonder how you can encode this into your daily life, like how you can very actively change your routine every day. It's a great question. Um, it's a really great question. I think that's um, that's the question. Yeah, uh, I always I always wonder about that. Like I specifically will sometimes list my routine and then try to deliberately say, okay, what can I change and what can I not change? Yeah, and I would say these. This is worth doing not just because it will of, of the effect it will have on your perception of time, but because that is the recipe for having a really interesting life and. Uh, yeah, if you can find ways to just really remove yourself from the comfort of what you normally do from the time you wake up to the time you go to sleep. And if you can do that every day, then that's, that's, that's a rich life that you're leading. There, there, was, there was one character in your book who also fascinated me, uh, Ben Pridmore. The, he was like, I don't know, was he the world champion at one point? He was the world champion. A, a few times, yeah. yeah. And he, he um, suggested that perhaps Amer- at that time – Americans were worse because we were so preoccupied with the future as opposed to Europeans being preoccupied with the past. Yeah, I think that was tongue-in-cheek. I don't think he, he, he was really advancing that, that view. Um, but it's a, it's, it's, it's a fun thing to contemplate. Yeah, it was a fun theory because if you think about it, if I just totally take the stereotype, it seems to apply. Yeah, and I, I do believe that different cultures are you know, future-oriented to different degrees. That's certainly something I've seen with the, the hunter-gatherers I've been spending time with is they truly live in the present and don't think that much about the future. And that has profound implications up and down their lives. 
in terms of how they think about savings, how they think about how to spend their time. The, the idea of investing in the future is, is, is really pretty foreign to them. So I, I do believe that we have different, different beliefs about, about time and the past and the future and the present. And, and, and it goes back thousands of years because you bring up the, the story by Socrates where he basically – he seemed like down on memory, thinking of it as just simply reminding as opposed to something that really advances culture. And yeah, I, I love that, that, that quote that you're, you're uh, alluding to, which is you know, Socrates was up in arms over the, this new technological invention that had appeared on the scene about 2,500 years ago called writing. And he thought writing was making people stupid, it was making them forgetful, and that it was, uh, the culture was headed down this slippery slope because we were, we were just going to outsource our brains to paper, to papyrus, parchment and, and not remember anything anymore. And what's amazing is like that is so similar to the arguments that you hear made today about Google and smartphones and the technologies that we are in the process today of outsourcing our memories to. So it's a very, very old argument. It's very similar. And there's one there's one difference, although maybe it could be similar. You know, there's studies that show writing helps you delve psychologically deeper into what's going on in, in yourself. And and that that that's sort of like kind of this byproduct of being uh, a writer is that you have to kind of explore how you feel about a topic even a little more deeply than if you're just kind of remembering things or writing down what you remember. And I wonder. I don't think the same thing occurs when I'm just kind of googling for facts. Uh, yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Writing requires a kind of depth of engagement, a depth of thinking that uh, we don't normally practice. And that's part of what makes writing so incredibly damn hard is you've got to be doing that with every sentence that you write. And when we're just having a casual conversation, we don't have to be quite as careful or quite as – we don't have to dig as deep as you do when you're writing. When you were writing Moonwalking with Einstein, which happens after you win, of course, what did you kind of figure out about yourself from looking back in that way at the process of becoming the U.S. memory champion? I mean, you did ask early, earlier, like, what, what was transferable about this? And, and, I, and, I, and I sort of ducked the question. But, you know, I, I think there was something that I learned about myself in the process of doing this, and which I think might be more generalizable to other people, which is about these incredible capacities that we have in, our, in ourselves, and which I unlocked in this kind of weird, esoteric pursuit of training my memory, but which, you know, I, I feel like knowing that I was able to do that helped spur me to, to write that book, which was absolutely the hardest thing I've ever done. Writing that book was harder than, writing Moonwalking with Einstein was harder than winning the U.S. Memory Championship. In, sure. in, what, in what way was it hard? Because in, in, to some extent, you, you, you obviously, now I'm seeing the, the final product, but it seems like very clear, like you interlaced, you know, the history of memory and history of memory learning with your story, and then finally the culmination, which is you winning. So what, what, what to you was the hard part? <laughs> it's of it's always obvious in retrospect how yes. it's supposed to work. But, um, you know, that's what you're seeing is the glossed over version that uh, is after, or the smoothed over version after chopping off all the rough edges and finally figuring out uh, how to present this material in a way that would be engaging, interesting, carry the reader forward along a narrative trajectory. Uh, it's the problem, set of problems I'm wrestling with right now in this book that I'm working on. 
And the, the goal is at the end for it to seem entirely seamless, entirely like, uh, like it must have been easy to create. But it's never easy, not for anybody. You know, you, you dealt with so many interesting characters. And again, I, I want to bring up Ben Pridmore. So here's this guy who was the quote-unquote world champion of memory. And you talk about how he was also an assistant accountant in a meatpacking company. So there's like this huge kind of almost gap between these amazingly talented and skilled people in this area and then what they did for their quote unquote real lives. You know, do you think there's ever going to be a closure of that gap where, where memory championships get recognized and these guys can make a living and, and a good living at it? I think increasingly since this book came out, I think things have begun to change. Uh, I know a couple uh, U.S. memory competitors who seem to be doing quite well, pr- sort of promoting memory and promoting memory memory skills. The guy who is the current U.S. memory champion is an incredible. His name is Nelson Dellis. He climbs uh, he, he climbs mountains all over the world. He's climbed Everest because you know like, after you win the U.S. memory championship, what else are you going to do except climb Mount Everest? Well, it's part of this idea of having these enriching experiences. Like it seems like that's what these guys. Like you mentioned, this other guy, Lucas who suddenly he's out of the book for a while because he had a fire-breathing accident. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, um, like it wasn't like these guys were just focused on memory. They were having like experience after experience. And Ben Pridmore, for instance, he quit his job to, in order to use his memory to count cards in Las Vegas. Like how did that work out for him? Yeah, well, so like I think it's not a coincidence that people who look at the world through, you know, kind of a quirky pair of eyeglasses uh, who – are finding interesting, amazing, exciting things in the world all around them all the time are going to be better at these kinds of memory techniques because ultimately these memory techniques are about creating funny, quirky, weird images in your mind's eye as quickly as possible. That's the real competition. How fast can you create a really funny, weird, strange, crazy image to help you remember whatever this piece of information that would otherwise be unmemorable? How fast can you do that? If you can create that image, your memory takes care of itself. And so what these competitions are really testing is that kind of creativity. So I don't think it's surprising that you'd find people who are uh, a little bit weird, uh, who live interesting lives, who are doing uh, these, kinds of, these kinds of memory competitions. Well, well, it's interesting because I guess then what they're really getting good at is coming up with thousands of really strange images. For instance, the the title itself refers to, you know, moonwalking with Einstein refers to this PAO system that that you uh, that you use as a memory technique for. I forget if you're memorizing uh, packs of cards, but you can also use it for numbers. Yeah. So so like you remember a, a, a physical person, an action, and an object. That's right. Yeah. So it's a basically a, a, a sort of a code for converting either playing cards or numbers into weird, memorable, original images. And the idea is, I won't go into too many details, uh, but the idea is basically every card in the deck is associated with a person, an action, or an object. In fact, every card is associated with a person, an action, and an object. And when you combine three cards, you you take the person from the first card, the action from the second card, and the object from the third card, and you create a new effectively a sentence of a, of a you know, uh, me moonwalking with Einstein or um, Bill Clinton uh, playing basketball 
with a, um, you know, a, a fishing net. And that image is so, because of its combinatorial or recombinatorial nature, is necessarily something relatively unique, something unusual, something that like requires you to take a second to really like process it because it's so weird. That's what makes that image memorable. And, uh, and, and so the, the title of my book, Moonwalking with Einstein, refers to a set of three cards that I ended up memorizing in the process of becoming the U.S. memory champion. And, and memorizing three cards at a time in that way with those images uh, means you only have to memorize a third, essentially, as much as what you would have memorized if you're just mem remembering all 52 cards. Yeah, and there, there are guys in Europe, in Germany, who um, can remember six cards in a single image. So, uh, you know, that means you condense an entire pack of cards into, what, like eight, 18 images? Is that right? Yeah. No, uh, no, nine images. Excuse me. Right. So, so when Ben Pridmore went off to Las Vegas to count cards, was he able to use these techniques? Like, did he, was he successful at counting cards? So I don't know a lot about card counting. I know kind of what I've read in the popular literature. My sense is it's a different skill than this kind of card memorization. Although I will say I was once approached by, a, uh, by somebody who's involved in like one of these card counting rings who wanted me to join up with him because he had apparently figured out some sort of a new technique that involved memorizing the order of, or memorizing the positions, excuse me, the positions of certain cards within the deck and taking advantage of the fact that those, the mechanical shufflers are not exactly 100% random. And if you could remember the placement of certain cards, you could give yourself just enough of an edge over the house that you would somehow be able to beat them. That was all he explained to me about his strategy. I don't know if it really works, but uh, I told him, like, you know, <laughs> I, I enjoy having my kneecaps. I don't need to go in against the casinos. Thank you. And so it seems like you didn't really, um, like, other than participating in the world championships after you won the U.S. championship, you didn't really pursue much further kind of getting your, your, the 10,000 hours under your belt in terms of uh, memory techniques and so on. Like you didn't, you didn't aim for the 2007 world championship. You no, know, I, I had to make a call. I had to make a decision after winning that U.S. memory championship and then, and then going to the world memory championship as the official representative of the United States. I had to make a decision about whether I was going to keep going with this or whether I was going to move on to other things. And ultimately, at the end of the day, I decided that like my identity is I'm a journalist. I'm a science journalist. And... This was a, a crazy, wild, amazing story that I got involved with. It had uh, a really unexpected and wonderful outcome. But it was one story that I was going to tell, and I was going to move on to my next story. And that's, and that's what I've done. Um, and so it's true I haven't uh, become the world memory champion, or I haven't uh, – I, I wasn't you know, the U.S. memory champion for, 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 for three years in a row or anything like that. But I think I've done other, other worthwhile things with my time in the meantime. Well, well, the the book is excellent, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna give it many great. I'm gonna say many great things about it in a second. One final question I have is: you mentioned that um, two thirds of 17 year olds, uh, at least in the U.S., can't tell you within 50 years when the Civil War started. And I wasn't sure if I believe that or not, but just now on the way I was driving my kids around, uh, I asked my two kids when the Civil War started. And one gave me the correct answer, and the other was more than fifty years off. So it's it's interesting. Like, why can't we remember what we learned in school at all? It's drilled into us repeatedly, over and over, and it's just it's useless. 
Apparently not drilled in well enough or, yes. or not drilled in in the right way. Yeah. Is there any way to change that? Make school more interesting. We remember the stuff when it's interesting to us. And I think too often when we don't remember, it's because it just, it's kind of boring at the time. Um, so we need better teachers. That's what we need. Josh, your book, Moonwalking with Einstein, I highly recommend it. It's a, it's a total page turner. It took me like maybe a day to, or two days to read it. Like it was a really great book to read. And you, by the way, you give a ton of techniques for memorizing uh, names, uh, decks of cards, numbers, poetry, everything. Like it's a really great book for, for memory learners. And I think it could be applicable to other areas of life. Like if, if you're, uh, you didn't mention this aspect, but if like, if you're an actor, I imagine you could, you could uh, memorize scripts more easily using your techniques. Um, I would imagine. Actors actually have their whole own set of techniques. I talk just for a second in the book, but they're, they're fascinating. And Josh, I'll also be seeing you. You're speaking at a conference that I'm going to in, what, when is it? Like October. Uh, yeah, I'm excited about that. Looking yeah. forward to, to meeting you in person there. Yeah. So thanks again. Thanks for showing up on the podcast and I will see you soon. All right. Take care. Thanks so much. Okay. Bye, Josh. Bye. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network at stansberryradio.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.